All right, tonight, this is what we're going to do. Um, we were going to go and finish up the remaining points dealing with the 18 thoughts of Pelagianism. However, if you look around, <laughs> there's a lot of people missing. So, um, I don't want to deal, I mean, because we, uh, everyone's got to be on the same page with those, right? Because uh, we can't get back to the eternal decrees of God, and we can't get back to the Senate until everyone is on the same page with the, uh, what the 18 thoughts of Pelagianism is, and how we're, you know, uh, some responses to some of those points. Um, if we don't get that down, then, then, I mean, we can't go on. So, um, instead of trying to do it now, and then basically reteaching it for Sunday school, because the, I mean, I could assume that everybody would listen, but I think reality teaches me that that would be a bad assumption. So, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to do an impromptu hermeneutics lesson, all right, based off some notes I have here on this iPad. That's why I don't have the iPad connected to the sound booth, because I'm recording holding the iPad. So hopefully this will all work. Hopefully. We changed everything at, uh, at the last minute. All right. Um, the, uh, these notes comes from an, an article. It may have been um, a book. I don't know how this originally appeared. I know there's been two editions, but it's called Grasping God's Word. Grasping God's Word. So if you want to give this a title, we're going to call this Grasping God's Word. Obviously, as Christians, we want to, when the idea of grasping something is to grab hold of, right? Is that a good idea? to grab hold of something. And the idea is when we open our Bible and read it, we want to be able to grab onto it. We want to grasp, we want to grasp it in the sense of understanding it. Not just reading words, not just even understanding the words themselves, but understanding how the words fit together and then understanding the meaning that those words are trying to convey. Not that we assign some arbitrary meaning to them, but the words obviously have a meaning. They were put together a specific way, and our job is to read them, understand them, interpret them, and apply them. And that's why, and we and we have to be doing this all the time. So we're going to look at this idea of grasping God's word. We're just going to work through some of these notes. Some of these things we've talked about a thousand times here. Some of these, it may be a uh, outlined a little differently. So we will go, I'm just going to go with the way they have it presented, and then I will interject my own commentary and thoughts as we go through. All right, everybody ready? The first uh, major point here is called the interpretive journey. The interpretive journey. Now, I like the idea there because the idea is, is interpretation is a journey that you under, as soon as you start reading, you undertake a journey, and that journey begins with you reading, and it concludes when you have an interpretation, right? I think we could say the interpretive journey really has, re I think there's kind of three parts to this journey. Reading, right? Actually, we'll say four parts. Reading, observation, interpretation, an application. Would we agree that that would make sense? Right? And especially all the things that we have talked about so many times. You have the reading part because God's given us his revelation in written form, correct? So we have to read, right? And then before you can interpret, what do you have to do? Observation. And what's another name for observation? What's another name for observation? 
And nobody gives it this. Uh, now, I've, told, I've taught, said this a thousand times. Most, most people don't call observation this. Another name for observation is Bible study. True Bible study is not interpretation. It is observation. So reading, observation slash Bible study. Right? Then that leads to, that leads to what? What's the next thing? After observation? Okay. Interpretation. And what would be another name for interpretation? Hermeneutics, right? Okay. The, the science or the method of interpretation. So, but we can't interpret until we observed, right? So you have to read. You have to observe. You have to interpret. And then what, everyone knows the last step. Application. Application. Right? You've got to apply what you have read, what you have observed, what you have interpreted. And your, op and your interpretation has to be consistent with what you have read, with what you have observed, observed and with what you have interpreted. interpreted all right? it's, it's that key. So the interpretive journey really has those four parts. Now, if you think about your daily engagement with God's Word, if you do have daily engagement with God's Word, Many don't take that journey, right? They may do a little reading, but that's, you didn't, that, that means you didn't get to the conclusion, right? That means you just read a little bit. You may observe, you may make an observation as you're, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. Well, that's okay, that's, you're, you've done a little bit, but did you come up with an actual interpretation using hermeneutical methods, and then did you apply it? Sometimes we, we don't do the entire journey, all right? So the interpretive journey has those four parts, okay? Everybody got that? Now, they want you to understand, so if, you, if we're doing this, the interpretive journey, first thing we have is the four parts, right? Now, they want us to understand the interpretive steps. The interpretive steps. Now, they don't, they don't lay out the parts. I gave you the parts, so that this, my, my outline will be different. So if we had number one, then, number, then letter A would be the four parts, and B would be the steps, the steps. Now, what are they going to lay out as the interpretive steps? You ready? Number one, grasp the text in their town. Grasp the text in their town. Now, I know you're like, what does that mean? Remember, this is the idea of a journey, right? Okay, they're gonna, they're gonna use some creative language to try to present these ideas. And the reason so many different um, hermeneutical type articles and publications change the language is because you can say something a hundred times, but sometimes when you say it differently once, all of a sudden it clicks and you don't know. See, so some you've got to constantly change the way you try to present it. All right. So the interpretive journey, we've broken it down into four parts, right? All right. They want us to understand the steps of the journey. Every journey has a step, right? Okay. So here are the interpretive steps. The first step is grasp the text in their town. Grasp the text in their town. Now, what do you think they mean by grasp the text in their town? What do you think they mean by that? Okay, there you go. All right, grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the original audience? What did the text mean to the original audience? 
grasp the text in their town is basically saying, what did the text mean to the original audience? And we've talked about that a million times, correct? So grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the original audience? Everybody ready? <clears throat> Step two, measure the width of the river to cross. Measure the width of the river to cross. Measure the width of the river to cross. All right, I come to this river, man. How wide, how wide is this thing? What's the width of this thing that I have to cross? What do you think they mean by that? So we have to use interpretive skills even to interpret what they mean here. Okay. What do they mean by measure the width of the river to cross? What do you think? You, 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 you guessed right for grasp the text in their town. When you're, when you're on an interpretive journey, what river do you have to cross? Okay, well, that, that is definitely one. I've got to grasp the differences between the biblical audience and us. There's a river, right? Here I am. Where am I at? Texas, 2019. I'm reading about people who are where? Not in 2019, right? Thousands of years ago, living in a completely different part of the world speaking a completely different language. In fact, they, they existed before our country even existed, right? So the, our culture and our understanding obviously is drastically different than their culture and their understanding. So when we pick up the book, we have to immediately when we start reading, we have to realize there is a big river, right? In fact, it's an ocean, Forget river. I mean, they say measure the width of the river. You may want to measure the width of the ocean. It's like an ocean apart. We're way over here. They're way over there. But we have a tendency of reading it, making it sound like, you know, they were hanging out in downtown, you know, wherever. And, you know, and that they were, it, it, we almost, we, it's almost impossible for us to go, wait a minute. Their understanding and their, their perception is far different than ours. And we have to measure that with the width of that and understand we got to try to figure out what the differences are between the biblical audience and us. And let's be honest, that's not easy to do, is it? That's not easy to do. All right? Well, in fact, what, what tools can you use to uh, try to figure out the, uh, the width of the river to cross? What tool, tools are available? Well, you don't, you don't have necessarily a lot because sometimes commentaries will try to say, oh, this is what... This is how the culture acted at that time, and this is what they did. But what's so frustrating is sometimes when you start looking into it, you're like, wait a minute, that's not accurate. That's not real. And you'll find like, you know, three other commentaries that go, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. So it's very difficult other than trying to find books dealing with, you know, um, biblical customs, uh, biblical times, uh, books dealing with the, the culture and the times that you're reading about. Like, okay, um, you know, anytime you can pick up, say, um, um, overviews of books are helpful, right? In this, part, in this sense, when you read 1 Corinthians, when we do an overview of the book of 1 Corinthians, correct? What did we learn? 
Okay, well, we learned about a city that this church was in. And once we started learning about the city, then we at least started having some idea, okay, there's some things messed up in this city, and guess what? There's some things not right in this church, and clearly what's going on in the church has something to do with what's going on in the city. So now we still didn't understand. I mean, we, we, we didn't become any experts in the, in the people of Corinth at that time, but we tried our best to go, okay, when they're talking about hair or a man not to have the hair as a woman or, or, or uh, head coverings or like, like some people want to just move that over to, you know, oh, this is talking about the hippie movement in the 1960s. And you know, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. You know, we've got to go figure out what it meant here and go, okay, how does that apply to us? Does it even apply to us? How do, we, how do we make it apply? But that's what people will do. They'll start using, and pastors do that, right? Because you're trying to transfer, you're trying to transfer these biblical issues in a modern context, right? But even the pastor can be dated even, like if you have an older pastor talking about the hippie movement of the 1960s, that's not even relevant to 2019, right? So it's like, there's, a, there's an ocean and we just got to realize like, wait a minute, what is going on here? Like, what what are these people? What 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 are they talking about? And we got to understand that difference. And we just have to be honest. Sadly, we have to rely on a lot of other people, right? Because I mean, we can't get in a a, a time machine and go back and go, oh, sir, could you explain to me what this meant? You know, what's going on in your culture? We can't. So we got to pick up different books and hopefully that. We'll, and we and we're trusting outside sources. Right? And we're trusting out. I mean, we always talk about the Bible and the Bible alone. Okay, we may say the Bible is the final authority, but we can't, have, we can't just study the Bible alone and always grasp it because we have to measure the width of the river, river to cross. When I'm reading about certain things, I'm, I've got to go, what are they talking about? Like, what is going on? And sometimes when I get insight into that culture, hopefully from sources I can trust, hopefully, because sometimes you don't know. I mean, you pick up a commentary and they're like... For example, when Jesus says, you know, um, if someone uh, t uh, tells you to, you know, carry something a mile, carry it two miles, the general understanding is that there was a law at the time that a Roman soldier could walk up to a Jew and say, carry, you know, my gear for a mile, and Jesus is telling them to carry it two. Now, is that accurate? We don't know. We've been told that. We, there are sources that state that. But in many cases, well, guess what they don't tell us? Where they got their information. And, and even if you go back and find out where they got their information, let's say it's a pastor who wrote a, a, a commentary in 1982. In many cases, he's quoting a, a different source that was published in 1960. So, where, so then where did that source get it? So then you got to try to go back to that source and go, where did you get it? Like, did they have a document from 30 to, you know, 29 AD that says, here's the law. I mean, where, where did they get the information? Now, I know that leads to a lot of, of skepticism and a lot of people don't like that, but I think we just have to be honest that there's times that we, we definitely want to figure it out. We definitely want to figure it out, but we just have to know that there are limitations and we got to, and, and whenever we realize that our interpretation is going to make us jump that ocean, that river, and we're going to just say, oh, this is what was going on. We got to realize that maybe, just maybe, we got to be careful about being dogmatic.
All right. So step. What was? Uh, so remember the interpretive journey. First, we got the four parts. What are the four parts? Reading. Reading. Observation. observation interpretation. interpretation and, application. and application. The steps. Step one. Grasp the text in their town. What does that mean? What did the text mean to the original audience? Number two, measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? What, what are the differences? What are the differences? Step three, cross the bridge, or they call it the principal, principalizing bridge. We'll just say cross the bridge, and we'll, we'll figure out what bridge they're referring to. Right? Well, let's call that. Well, well, let's. I'm going to change this up. We'll cr uh, we'll say cross the theological bridge. Cross the theological bridge. Let's state it that way. All right. That's why you should always write in pencil. Okay. Because <laughs> I can change. I can change any time. Right. <laughs> or just do it, Bobby. Just wait for a second until until I, I get my I'll idea. Fill in and hopefully I'll be able to read it later. Okay. There you go. All right. Um, cross the theological bridge. What do you think they mean by this? What do you think they mean by cross the theological bridge? This one's a little hard to understand just by the title, right? Uh, grasp the text in their town. Okay. Measure the width of the river. Okay. There's something I need to cross. Okay. I get that idea. Cross the principal bridge. Okay, that's kind of where they're going. Um, they, they, they describe it this way. What is the theological principle in this text? What is the theological principle in this text? Now, what do we mean by theological principle? Now, it depends on how you want to define theological, right? Because very technically, it just means study of God. So what, what principle is it teaching us about God? Now you could broaden it because when we talk about systematic theology, that involves a lot of things, right? Eschatology, ecclesiology, soteriology, all kinds of ologies, right? So I think we could say this, what is the doctrinal principle in this text? Maybe that would even be better, right? What doctrinal or theological text or principle is in the text? Now, why do you think they would put that as part of the interpretive journey? Because there's a presupposition for, for point number three. What is the presupposition to point number three? The presupposition is that the Bible was written to teach us some doctrine or theology. It's not just t uh, teaching us to go, oh, this is what Paul said to the Romans, right? That, you know, and it has nothing to do with me. That, what we, that the presupposition is that it's written for doctrine, for understanding for us, that there's a theological principle, a doctrinal teaching in the passage, and we've got to figure out what that is. So there is a presupposition built into that. All right? All right, everybody ready for the next one? Step four. Grasp the text in our town. Grasp the text in our town. 
So we start with grasping the text in their town. We measure a width of the river, trying to figure out how wide this river is to cross. We cross a bridge, right? And then we have to grasp the text in our town. What do you think that means? How should the individual Christian today apply the, the principle or the teaching of the book in our lives today? How should we apply? Just put application. It's all you need to know. All right, now they leave one out. It's weird that I don't know why they leave this one out, but they, they, they put it at the bottom as a note. And it's weird that they did it, but so I'm just reading it the way they present it. I was going to present it differently, like if I was going to work on this, but this was kind of an impromptu thing. So I'm just following them because I don't want to get too confused. So we're going to, we, we've got their four, right? And their four is grasp the text in their town, measure the width, cross the bridge, the theological bridge, and grasp the text in our town. You know what each one of those means, right? Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. They leave out a point between number three and number four. And I don't know why they leave it out, but they do, right? And this is what the note says. Note that between steps three and four for interpreting the Old Testament is an additional step. I think you should just put the step there anyway, but they, they set it aside because, I mean, that's almost with the assumption that you won't be, you won't be studying the Old Testament that, that often. So, you know, but I, you know, I think, but I, okay, whatever. They set it aside. There had to be a possibly a reason. I mean, they can do whatever they want, but for me, I would place it in there and just put for, for the Old Testament. But this is the principle. You ready? I'll read it again. Note that between steps three and four for interpreting the Old Testament is an additional step. This is how they uh, describe the step. Cross into the New Testament. Cross into the New Testament. Now, what do you think that means? Cross into the New Testament. Yeah, okay. This is the way they write it. Does New Testament teaching modify... Or qualify this principle? And if so, how? Does New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? So here's the argument. If I'm, if I'm over here in the Old Testament, right? I've got to grasp the text in their town. I've got to figure out what this Old Testament text meant to the original audience, okay? And that's true no matter if I'm reading Old or New Testament, all right? Step number two, I've got to measure the, wither, the width of the river to cross. What is the difference between me, uh, for between us and them? And that is true of New Testament and Old Testament. Now, step, what they would say would be step, uh, or no, step three is cross the, uh, the theological bridge, okay? So whether I'm reading the Old Testament, the New Testament, I try to figure out what is the doctrinal teaching here? What is the theological teaching and try to grasp that? Then they would, what they, they would place this as number four, or uh, they would place this as number four if you're reading the Old Testament and they would say, I have to cross into the New Testament, Right? So if I'm reading an Old Testament passage, this is what I have to do. I've got to grasp the town. I've got to measure the width. I've got to get the, I've got to get the, cross the theological bridge. And then I have to stop and go, wait a minute. I need to cross over here into the New Testament and ask myself, does New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? Now, I completely agree with that. Now, here's the thing. We have discovered 
that the, the typical way you're going to cross over is by looking for, is that Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament? And what we have learned, that once you get to the New Testament, go, oh, they quote Jeremiah, or they quote Isaiah. What we've discovered is that opens up a whole new can of worms, right? That's a whole new difficult thing. And I'm not going to repeat all of the principles that we have talked about in great detail um, when we were looking at Romans chapter 1, verse 2. So I do acknowledge you got to cross over, but when you cross over, that's when the work really begins because now you're like, wait, 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 wait. What did Paul just do with the back? Wait, what is Matthew doing with uh, Hosea chapter 11? What is going on? Now you got to know how to do that. See, Well, no, when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to cross over to the New Testament. Because once I, if I'm over here reading, you know, uh, you know, whatever, if I'm, say I'm reading Psalm 2, I got to figure out, well, wait a minute. Okay, I need to understand Psalm 2 in its original context, understand what it means to the original audience, do all those steps. But at some point, I've got to go, okay, if I'm going to get a biblical understanding of this, I've got to cross over and go, does the New Testament do anything with Psalm 2? Oh, it quotes Psalm 2 a couple of times, all right? How does it quote it? Because that may modify my understanding of it. Does that make sense? Right? Now, but, but I don't want to just run to the New Testament. I got to stay there first. And that, that's what you know, some people get irritated with me by. But I think first thing I got to do is what does Psalm 2 mean to the original hearers? Because what we have realized is just because the New Testament does something with it, they may not be, they may, they're not reinterpreting Psalm 2 so that we can go back and read a new interpretation of it. They may be using Psalm 2. That means the original interpretation has to be done in its context. Now when I, get to, when I go to the New Testament, remember we talked about this, how are they using it? Sometimes we just, well, this is what we do. Okay, Psalm 2. Oh, it's cited in the New Testament. This is what the New Testament does with it. And then what do we do? We read that back. And to Psalm 2, making it the official interpretation of Psalm 2. And what we've learned is that may not be, that may be bad hermeneutics. And we've all been guilty of it. Because that's how much you're almost taught to do so. Oh, look. Read this story. Oh, they, they quote it over in 1 Corinthians. Okay, that's how we interpret it. But maybe Paul in 1 Corinthians wasn't reinterpreting the Old Testament. He was simply using it. Remember, we talked about that. All right, so I think that's very important. So I just think it's interesting. That is, a, that is a very good point. I think it should just put be put in with the list, but that's okay. They, they separate it, all right? Everybody got that? All right, so we got the interpretive uh, journey, all right? First, we, we broke the interpretive journey down into how many parts? Four. Parts. Four. What are the four parts? Reading, observation, interpretation, and application. All right, then we said that the interpretive journey involves steps, right? And what are the steps? Number one, grasp the text in their town. Number two, measure the width of the river to cross. Next, cross the theological bridge. Next, grasp the text in our town. And if I'm studying the Old Testament, cross into the New Testament. All right, everybody got that? All right, that's the interpretive journey. All right, now let's put. Uh, all right, how do we want to do this? Let's put down, let's put down C. So we've got the interpretive journey, one, then we've got A, the parts, B, the steps, C, the principles. 
or the criteria for the principles. Let's call it that, the criteria for the principles. Right now, what this is is when you're trying to do all of those things, right? When you're trying, when you when you're considering those four parts, right? When you're taking these steps, you're going to be using some principles, correct? And there, here is the criteria for the principles that you're going to use in order to do this. You ready? Here's cri uh, here's uh, the criteria for the first principle. Well, the first principle. Here we go. The principle should be reflected in the text. Criteria for principles. Okay, let me make sure. I, I think I understand what they're trying to do here. All right. So we have the parts. We have the steps. And part of these steps, we, they talked about finding the principle, right? The theological principle. Um, remember they also said about applying the, the theological principle. Correct? So in other words, when I'm studying, when I'm doing this interpretive journey, I'm going to be finding principles to apply. I'm going to be finding principles saying, oh, that's what's being taught. They're saying, here's the criteria for those principles. Like if I'm going to identify something as a principle, here are the criteria it has to meet before I can identify it as a principle. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. All right. Here are the criteria for the principles. Number one, the principle should be reflected in the text. The principle should be reflected in the text. All right. What does that mean? That means if you're, if, if you're taking these interpretive steps and you cross the theological bridge and you're like, here's the principle, here's, the, here's what this text is teaching, right? What do you have to demonstrate? You have to demonstrate the principle is reflected in the text. You can't just come up with what it's teaching. You can't just say, oh, this is what it's teaching. The principle has to be reflected in the text itself. It's easy to read a verse and go, oh, oh, that's teaching um, this about Jesus. And you're like, it, it, is it? Is it? Is, is that, are you sure? Well, I mean, it's, is it really reflected in the text? You've got to demonstrate that it's reflected in the text. Number two, the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. The principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. I'll give you an example. Did uh, God do a miracle in allowing Abraham and Sarah to have a baby? Yes. yes. All right. Now, if I draw a principle from that, let me give you an example. Principle. God is all-powerful. Is that uh, timeless and not tied to a specific situation? Yes. God will grant a woman who can't have a baby a baby. But that's not what that te text is teaching. No, it's not. A possible goes with the first principle God is all powerful. All right? But you cannot go to a woman and say, look, God gave. Yeah, this woman couldn't have a baby. I mean, you got different examples in the Bible where a woman didn't, couldn't have a baby. God miraculously steps in and had a baby. That's not, you cannot say that that's the principle of the text, right? Because that principle is what? 
not timeless, and it's tied to a specific situation, right? Over and over. Now, I, I can find a principle that is timeless and not tied to a specific situation, and that is the, an attribute of God, a character of God. God is all-powerful. I cannot say because he's all-powerful, he's going to do A, B, C, D, and E because he did A, B, C, D, and E and Exodus. And Exodus, he brought a play. You know, people will say that all the time. If God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. No. <laughs> you know, that's not true, right? Hey, God can judge when he wants to judge. Now you're taking what he did there and you're taking a principle. Well, because he judged this place, he has to judge every place equally. Well, now, now you're, you're taking something that was tied to a specific uh, situation, it is not timeless and apply. Now, what can you learn from Sodom and Gomorrah? God hates sin and he's a God of wrath and he will judge. Doesn't mean he's going to judge that way every situation because there was all, I mean, you're telling me the world has only been uh, all of our thoughts on wickedness. I mean, continually, I mean, in some ways you can look at what happened with the flood and go, well, man, the, the world has been pretty bad for a long time. Maybe it was worse at that time. Maybe you can make an argument, but I'm just saying there's lots of times he brought judgment and he didn't, Ananias and Sapphira lied. How many times? Dead, right? Abraham, I mean, lied, at least two, Abraham lied multiple times, right? David I mean, lots of people in the Bible lied. Well, why not? The, uh, the women in uh, the book of Exodus when they lied about the, the babies, right? Yes. Okay, so that, now you can say, well, those are justifiable lies. Okay, now, whoa, 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 slow down here. How you, so the point is, you can, when God does something in a specific time, we can learn about his attribute. You cannot then apply that principle as this is how God must act or this is what God will do based on the past thing. That is... That it, the principle has to be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Again, if I'm reading Jeremiah and he has a promise, I promise to bless you. I know, have, I know the plans I have for you to bless you, to do wonderful things for you. Well, guess what? You can't make that principle for us because that is tied to? Jeremiah, to the people to a specific situation for the people who are coming out of Babylonian captivity. This 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 This... this is broken all the time. Everyone wants to go to the Bible and go, oh, here's the principle. But the principle has to be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Now, I can do this. Here's the principle that's tied to that time and that situation, right? Now I can do that. So you can point out the principle. You just can't make it a principle that I'm going to cross this over into my time and apply it to me. Does that make sense? It's, it's yeah, yeah, it's the promises. It's the same, but it's with it. Yeah, promises. It's with anything. Judgment. It doesn't matter what it is. I got to figure out. Wait a minute. Is there a principle here? And we always want to because people, Christians, will always say everything is applicable to me. No, 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 no. That leads to crazy interpretations. So, so number one, the principle should be reflected in the text. Number two, the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. I know, I know this is impromptu, so I'm giving you the best examples I can come up with at the top of my head. Probably the flood's not perfect because people would probably say it was different then than it's ever been. I'm just saying the world has been pretty bad for a very long time doing some pretty horrific things. So if you take any judgment, if you don't want to take the flood, I can take lots of judgments where God did, I mean, stepped in in powerful ways that he doesn't do other times. 
So it's not a, a, but I can still take a principle from it. God hates sin. God is a God of wrath. God judges. But I also can't say that that's how he's going to do so in every situation, right? Does that make sense? All right, next, the principle should not be culturally bound. The principle should not be culturally bound. All right, now this one is very difficult to work out because everyone uses this to their advantage, right? Every Christian will run to this, this uh, hermeneutical principle and use it to their advantage. Let me give you an example. Well, when Paul, you know, gave the prohibition for women to be pastors, that's a cultural thing, right? Oh, when it says uh, the woman, you know, women, to, uh, you know, have to be submissive, that was a cultural thing. Uh, when it talked about that, so we can find anything that we think is cultural when we don't like it, say it was culturally bound, and then move on. But it, people who will say that's culturally bound will take another verse that seems to be clearly culturally bound, and then you, you, okay, you have to determine when it is actually culturally bound. So what, what rules would you use to determine if something is culturally bound? Okay. I think some things we look for is, okay, if it was culturally bound, I've got to find something that would give me an indication that this is only applicable to that culture at that time. I got to find something. Good example. When we read the Old Testament, most agree that we can break the laws down into three categories. Civil. Civil. Moral. moral, Ceremonial. Okay. Ceremonial. I just posted something, uh, a discussion about this. All right. Now, we just saw this recently. The pastor in Tennessee, he's running to Leviticus, right? Does Leviticus call for the for the death penalty for, for uh, homosexuality? You, we could argue that it clearly does. All right. Now, what he wants to do is not, not make that culturally bound. He wants that to be brought into our culture today. Okay, well, wait a minute. If you're going to bring the, the, the death penalty for homosexuality into our culture today based off Leviticus, I got to go through the rest of the things that God calls for the death penalty on. You have children who talk back to their parents. Death penalty. Okay? All right? That would be, uh, I, I bet you his church would be losing a lot of kids. Right? I mean, there's a lot of things listed there. Right? So, wait, wait, wait. So, so see, he wants to remove the cultural prohibitors or, or the binding of, of that, and, but he's, he's ignoring the other. You would have to bring in the death penalty for everything in the Bible, and you would be killing people. I mean, and then who applies the biblical principle of punishment? You could, because the only people you could hand it to is the government. And he, like, he didn't even think that through. If I hand the biblical mandate of killing everyone for all of these biblical commands to the government, well, that was only great when the government wanted to, to follow the biblical commands found in your Bible. But if the government becomes, say, Muslim, then they'll carry out the, the commands for the Quran, and that means you die. You never want to give the government the right to punish for theological crimes or sin as laid out in the Bible. Like you, you've got to keep that. I mean, you've got to think that through, right? Because if you bring in, well, punish people for homosexuality, well, then the next thing you would do is punish people for heresy, false doctrine. Right? 
Like, so, adultery. adultery. I mean, you people would be dying everywhere. You'd be just, you'd be eliminating. I mean, the population would, we, we, we would stop the population problem. I mean, we, everybody would be dead. You'd be dead. The preacher himself would be dead. All right. So the principles should not be culturally bound. Let's just acknowledge this is a difficult one, right? This is difficult one. There's not a, there's not a clear step because again, when Paul's writing some of those things about the church. They, they do sound culturally bound in the sense that, man, in 2019 to say a woman can't be a pastor? Woo! That sounds, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? That sounds, that sounds outrageous. That sounds like you can't say certain things. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean that I bind it in that culture. I've got to try to figure it out. There's things in Corinthians, you know, the head covering. You know, there's some women who believe that's not culturally bound, right? And they walk into church and they wear their head covering because they believe it's not culturally bound. Okay, well, you know, how do you apply that? Because we don't even really know what's going on there, right? Like, because part of the text seems to describe that the, the hair is the head covering. Okay, well, then a woman can't cut their hair. Like, some people believe that. Like, how do you, how do you handle some of these things, right? So I will argue that, Trying to figure out if something is culturally bound or not culturally bound is not easy, but here's the thing. Whenever you read a text, you have to acknowledge or at least try to figure out, should this principle remain culturally bound? And if it does, then leave it alone. If you're not sure, try to figure out a, try to figure out a textual argument. Try to find out a textual argument for removing the chains from binding it culturally. Like, okay, no, this is a timeless principle. You've got to figure out the argument. Does that make sense? Because I, I think for like uh, the women that Paul, uh, I, here's, here would be my argument for the Paul passage. One, he's speaking to a church, correct? It's the last word, we're not, we don't have any other books telling us how the church should operate, do we? So if we throw out that cultural, then, then basically we have to say all the rules given to the church by Paul are culturally bound. Like I just can't remove, well, when he talks about women can't be pastors, well, then I got to say all the rules he gave for pastors are culturally bound. So we get to make up our own rules. Right. Well, nobody wants to do that. So it's just funny. Like some of the principles they, they want cultural, you see how, it's how, how disingenuous we can be when handling the text of scripture. So just keep that in mind. All right. The principles should not be culturally bound. Next, the principles should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. The principles should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Whatever principle we think is found in Numbers, right? We're like, hey, this is what Numbers is teaching. It has to correspond with what? The rest of the Bible. Right? Remember, in those interpretive steps, we talked about crossing the, 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 the bridge and finding the theological principle, correct? We talked about applying the principle in our lives, correct? That means we found a principle. We have to ensure that that principle corresponds to the teaching of the rest of the Scripture. It corresponds to the teaching of the rest of the Scripture. And let's be very honest, that is not easy to do, is it? That's not easy to do. Why is it not easy to do? Because very few people, when they, they have a principle, they're not going to sit down and go from Genesis to Revelation and try to ensure that that principle is 
consistent with it, right? They're, they're, gonna, they're just going to say, here's what I think this teaches. They're not going to spend the time trying to figure it out. There's people, there's, there are Christians who will give you, this is the meaning of the text, and if they're honest with you, they may have only read the Bible all the way through one time. Well, if you've only read the Bible through one time, are you really in the position to tell me that your interpretation of Exodus 12 verse 7 is consistent with the entire Bible? If you've only read the Bible one time? Did you stop and look up every possible verse that could... I mean, look, the, the whole debate about Israel, right? When we got into that whole debate about Israel, is there a spiritual Israel or does it refer to national Israel? It took us what, almost six months, right? Service after service doing what? Every single occurrence of the word Israel from Genesis to Revelation. Now, 99.9% of churches are never going to do that, right? They're never going to do that. The pastor will stand there and go, this is what this means. Here's three verses that proves it. And everybody will go, amen. That doesn't prove it's consistent with the teaching of the whole Bible. Because the only way to know if it's consistent with the teaching of the whole Bible is to do what? Got to look at the whole Bible. And I understand from a, a, a preaching standpoint, you can't do that in every sermon with every issue. I understand that. That just means you've got to be very careful when you say, this is the teaching. You've got, you hope the pastor is ensuring you that it's consistent, but you don't know how much time he spent either. Right? I mean, because, I mean, it's just, it's a very difficult principle to put into practice. All right? The principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Everybody got that? All right, next, the principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. The principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. Whatever principle you find in the text, as you took that interpretive journey, right, you're taking that interpretive journey, and you, oh, I think here's the principle, right? Well, you've got to ensure that principle is relevant to both the biblical and contemporary audience. If you're going to say, this is what this teaches, you've got to demonstrate to me that the, a contemporary audience would have understood the principle, and you. It's got to be relevant to both. That's hard to do, is it not? Because you know how many favorite teachings that would probably destroy <laughs> and, and, and for a lot of Christians? How many times do Christians read the Old Testament, say, oh, that's what it's teaching, and let's be honest, nobody in the Old Testament would have ever determined that that's what it taught. Now, is that, and is that a great way to handle it? Now, what we have to say in that case is the New Testament that it re-enter, like if you wanted to use one of those possible ways the New Testament uses the Old Testament, oh, it, um, it reinterpreted it. Okay, then okay, if you want to go with that way. But they're saying the basic, uh, the basic concept is, if I'm going to say, here's the principle in this text, it's got to be relevant somehow to them and to me. I can't forget them while I'm thinking about me. I think that's the main point there. All right, everybody got that? All right, so let's go back here. We are in the interpretive journey. The first thing about this interpretive journey is we broke the journey down into four parts. Those four parts are? Reading, observation, interpretation, and application. Reading, observation, interpretation, application. All right. Next, we said there are steps. 
We got, we, the steps are grasp the text in their town, measure the width of the river to cross, cross the, print, the uh, theological bridge, I'll use that term, uh, grasp the text in our town, apply it, and then if we're studying the Old Testament, make sure we cross into the New Testament. While we're doing those interpretive steps, we're trying to, that some of these require us to find the principle and the text, right? So then we added, here's the criteria for finding those principles. Number one, the principle should be reflected in the text. Number two, the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Number three, the principle should not be culturally bound. Number four, the principle should, should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. And lastly, the principle should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audiences. All right, now that's all number one, A, B, C, whatever letter we stop. Now go to number two. All right, you ready? So that's all kind of some general look at the interpretive journey. Everybody got that? All right, now number two. How to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. How to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. Now, their outline is all, I don't like their, their structure for their outline because I would probably put this together completely different, but I never agree with anybody's outline. So I'm just going with the way they've got it, all right? Okay. In fact, they didn't even break it down. They got number one, right, is, is everything we just talked about. They don't even have it broken down like A, B, C, like it doesn't even make any sense. And then here they have this as two through four. And, and it's like, I don't even, like it's weird the way this is broken down, but hey, that there's probably some law, rule they're following that I'm not aware of, but we're, we're, we're going to make it, we got their number one, we put everything under the interpretive journey, right? We broke it down into parts, into steps, into principles, agreed? Okay, and now we're going to talk about number two, how to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. To me, this would be a part of the interpretive journey, right? But you know what I'm saying? Like the whole thing to me is part of the interpretive journey, but that's okay. They want to make it separate. We'll separate it. How to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. Now, this seems kind of silly, right? To say how to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses, because you would think anyone who reads the Bible knows how to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. But the proof is people don't actually know how to read sentences, paragraphs, and discourses. All right? So I'm just going to give... Um, I'm just going to go through these, a couple of these quickly and we'll stop. Well, I mean, we started so late, but that's okay. We'll, we'll still finish uh, on time. Here we go. Um, number one, uh, repetition of words. Look for words and phrases that repeat. Repetition of words. Look for words and phrases that repeat. What does that typically indicate? Keywords, key verses. All right. All right, when a word is repeated or a phrase is repeated, it can be, it can fo it can, uh, be an indication of theme, right? It could be an indication of importance, and it can be the indication of a key to understanding. Right? That, that's my own, I, that, that's not from them, that's my own right there. So as I'm reading, I, I, I try to note uh, repetition of words because these words could indicate, the repetition of words could indicate what? Theme, Theme importance. importance, and a key to interpretation. 
and the key to interpretation. So I look for repetition of words. Next, contrast. Contrast. I look for ideas, individuals, and or items contrasted with each other. I look for contrast being made. Is this contrasting an idea? Like, does this verse contrast two different ideas? Does this verse contrast two different kinds of people? Does this um, verse contrast different items? You got to identify contrast. If you can't identify a contrast, then you're going to miss the whole point. If that's the point of the passage and you can't identify a contrast, you've just missed the entire point of the passage. Does that make sense? Com uh, comparisons. Number three, comparisons. Look for ideas, individuals, and or items compared with each other. In this case, they're not con they, don't, they don't show a contrast, they just show a comparison. So we got repetition of words, contrast, comparisons, and we'll stop right there. I would like to go further, but we won't. Now, I know what this means. You know what this just, you know what just happened, right? Now we got something else to try to figure out other than, I hate that, but I, I didn't know what else to do. Like if I, if I go, if I finish the thoughts on Pelagianism, then I just have to assume everyone's going to listen. And, 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 and I've been here too long to know that that's not going to happen. So then Sunday, then we start, then, then Sunday school, we walk in and we're like, okay, we're back to the eternal decrees of God. And then you'll have, you'll have people sitting here going, well, did we finish? Yeah, I posted it Wednesday night. It's now Sunday. At, I, I know that's what I have to do, but the problem is, then guess what happens once we start the eternal decrees? Then there'll be issues brought up. <laughs> there are, there are, and you're like, everyone's going to be on the same page. So, and, I, and if, if only I could come up with a way to make the sermons available to everyone. If only there was a way. I just, I, maybe technology will create, like, I don't know, like a podcast or, or where you could doubt, maybe an app or maybe, maybe. Maybe there was a, or, or, or people could show up to church. I, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so um, yeah, I'm being a little sarcastic there. But, uh, but so now I don't know what we do. So now we got we, we are going to finish this because this is, I think these are important principles on, on how to study the Bible. I'll post this in the hermeneutics section because we needed new content for the hermeneutics section anyway. So, all right, so we accomplished something. All right, but we will finish this. Uh, maybe we'll finish it Sunday night. Maybe we'll put Sunday, or we'll just use it for next Wednesday, right? Okay, but uh, Ripley wants us to finish Mark 11. I'm sure she does. Because here's what happened. Well, she's been waiting, but, but what she didn't realize is I did preach another sermon on Mark 11, but that was the day I had a seizure, and I don't even remember what I said, and I definitely wasn't going to post that online. I don't even remember, and I don't even know where, the, I think I deleted it when I got home. So, um, so um, she wants us to finish that. So we got a lot, we just need more church services is what we need. So, but we'll do. So hopefully those principles are, are good. And if you think about these principles, you know, if you've been listening, um, uh, what, three weeks ago, I did a, a, a week long focus on a, a verse in John 10. Then last week I did a, a, a week long focus on a verse in John 17. And this week I'm doing a week long focus on Ephesians, right? And I'm trying to get people to talk about them, discuss them. But if you know, I, I, I just ask questions about, Hey, 
Like, I'm just reading the passage and making an observation, right? Okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? Sometimes it's two questions. Sometimes it's three questions. And then trying to get people to work on them. That's putting these kinds of principles into practice. Like, like writing these principles down are of no value unless you use them. And so the week long, and then I'm posting sermons where you can try to find the, here people will try to give an answer. And then you can determine if you agree with the answer or not agree with the answer with your own struggle with the text. So, so it does fit what, what we're trying to do with that as well. It's another thing we're trying to do. And, you know, it's, ho- hopefully it'll be successful. All right, we'll stop right there and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, uh, it's, I hope we never take it for granted that you've given us your word in a written form. And I hope we never take for granted that we are the recipients of 2,000 years of individuals reading and studying the Bible and developing you know, a system and how to interpret it. And we, we can learn those methods. We can learn those steps so that we can actually sit down, read the Bible and understand it and interpret it and share it with others. I pray that we would be grateful every night, every morning, every afternoon for, the, for this uh, gift that you've given us, that we would read your word, and most importantly, we would do everything we can to read it and to interpret it correctly. And I pray that these principles will help someone somewhere, hopefully that will benefit us tonight, even if it's just a refresher, uh, that it will help us once again when we pick up that Bible the next time, be ready to, to read it and interpret it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...